Amen. Let's continue standing if we could for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Church of God, this is the word of God. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies... She is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. God, help us with this text. It's not an easy text, but it's one that you want to use to change our lives and transform us by the truth of your word. Do that now. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. If you desire that church, say amen with me. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. As you're being seated, let me just encourage you, those of you who are watching right now and those of you who are in uh, the sanctuary, to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 7. We're in our series, Holy Redeemed. And I want to start this morning by imagining with you a young woman Newly married, married for the first time to a holy, righteous husband. Okay, everybody with me? Young bride married to a holy, righteous husband. Her husband is perfectly holy. And yet at the same time, her husband is unforgiving. Can you imagine that? We will call that man, this new groom, Mr. Law. And his bride is the new Mrs. Law. And the marriage begins happy enough. The young bride wants to please her husband. But Mr. Law is unpleasable. He's unappeasable. And Mrs. Law is confronted each day by her husband with a list of demands that need to be done perfectly and in order. No half measures will be tolerated. No concessions will be made for I'm too tired or I'm too fatigued. There will be no excuses. No explanation will be asked for or given. And failure in any, in every case, will result in the unfortunate bride being cursed by her ineptitude and by her incompetence. Does that sound like fun in marriage? No. Now, does that mean that Mr. Law is a bad person? No. Does that mean that he's a bad husband? Yeah, he is. And to add insult to injury, whenever Mrs. Law makes mistakes, Mr. Law proceeds to live in total, inflexible adherence to his own impossible demands, humiliating his bride even more. Now, let's say that Mr. Law 
has coronary heart disease, okay? And all of a sudden, Mr. Law has a heart attack and dies. Now Mrs. Law is free to marry someone else. And this time, as Mrs. Law is looking for a spouse, she's looking for a husband that is not only righteous and holy, but also merciful. She's looking for a husband that is the embodiment of justice and mercy, faithfulness and forgiving. Mrs. Law is no longer married to a holy but exacting tyrant. Now, remarried, she's married to a rescuer who not only lives a holy life but dies to himself in order to help her live a holy life. Are you all tracking with me what I'm talking about here? Now, that's a good marriage right there, just in general. Whenever we do premarital counseling, we talk about this, how the husband needs to be like Christ and die to himself. But, you know, with young grooms, you know, it's like deer in headlights. They don't even know what that means yet. They're about to find out. Now, some of you all who've been married for a while, you're like, yeah, I know what that's about, but I do that imperfectly. Unlike the allegory that I just gave you. What did I just give you? I gave you an allegory for Christ and his bride, the church. And I think it's appropriate in Romans 7 that Paul is doing this, talking about this new groom of ours, no longer the law, but Christ as our groom. And, you know, at the end of Romans 6, you might remember from last week, Paul used that image of slave and master to describe the relationship between us and Christ. Paul says we can either be a slave to sin or we can be a slave to Christ. Choose your master, choose your Lord, choose who you want to serve. Do you want a leader who lovingly leads you or a leader who abuses you and punishes you and destroys you? Now in Romans 7, Paul shifts the metaphor, the analogy from slavery to marriage. And he talks instead about sin, he talks about the law. Who do you want to be married to? Do you want to be hitched to the law? That's not going to end well for you. Or do you want to be hitched to Jesus Christ, the perfect embodiment of justice and mercy, faithfulness and forgiveness? I don't know about you, but the answer to all of these questions for me is, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. As master, as husband, I want to be married to Jesus. I don't want to be married to the law. Give me Jesus. So let's talk about what it means to be married to Christ and not married to the law. I think actually this passage is more about how not to be married to the law, how to give up marriage to the law and instead come to Christ. And I'm going to use the same verbiage that I did for last week because I see these arguments as parallel in Paul's book of Romans. The end of Romans 6, it was the slave imagery, it was the slave metaphor. The beginning of Romans 7, it's the marriage metaphor. The law is not the same as sin, but according to Paul, believers in Christ Jesus are dead to both sin and the law. Okay, so here we go. Three points for today. First of all, a redeemed follower of Jesus Christ is no longer subject to the law. Is no longer married to the law. We are no longer slaves to sin. Romans 6, and we are no longer slaves or married to the law. Romans 7, Paul says this, verse 1, follow along with me in your Bibles. He says, and this is another one of his rhetorical questions, 
Or do you not know, brothers, I'm speaking to those who know the law, that is, the Jews and the Roman church and also the God-fearing Gentiles, that the law is binding on a person only as he lives. Now, notice how Paul qualifies who he's talking to in verse 1. He's talking to those who know the law. He's talking to the Jews in the church. And to the God-fearers, those Gentiles who are familiar with the Mosaic law and have tried to obey it. Just a a quick note of Bene here for you. This church in Rome that Paul's writing to is a very diverse church. And so it's full of Jews and Gentiles both. It's full of people that are from all over the Roman Empire that are gathered. And so as Paul's writing this book, he's got to address the whole gamut of people that are there gathered together. You've got Jews and you've got Gentiles. You've got people from all over the, the, the Roman Empire. You've got males and females. And so when you look at Romans 1 through 3, you can see Paul's addressing Gentiles and he's addressing Jews. And he's saying to those of you who think you're upright, moral specimens, those of you who follow the Jewish law, I'm addressing you. I'm also addressing you pagan, heathen Gentiles too. All of you together, what's the great argument in Romans 1 through 3? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It It doesn't matter your ethnicity, your religious background, how good you think you are. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the argument there. And Paul peppered throughout this entire book he keeps coming back to jew and gentile both addressing both he's like a preacher that's got to address everybody in the congregation and so here this argument is predominantly for the jewish people in the church the jews in paul's day thought that maybe just maybe the law might save them Ooh, ooh, or maybe it's this it's jesus plus the law some combination that's what we need And what Paul is saying here is salvation is by Christ alone apart from the law. Jewish believer, Gentile believer. And you don't want to be married to the law. You want Jesus. And that's why Paul says, asks in verse 1, do you not know? Do you not know, Christian, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Verse 2, let's follow the argument here. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, verse 3, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another, she is not an adulteress. Now, this was common knowledge in Paul's day, what he's saying here. And I I think we can understand this even in our day. We still say till death do us part in marriages or some modern equivalent of that. But you need to know that divorce in our day is much easier in our culture than it was in the ancient world, especially for women. When the husband dies, says Paul, the wife is free. But if the woman marries another while her husband is still alive... I mean, that that was a major faux pas in Jewish culture. You're at best a polygamist. You're at worst an adulteress. If a woman does that, then the woman technically is married to two people, and that's adultery. Even Jesus spoke about this. In the book of Mark, he says this, Mark 10, he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. But Paul's point here, I just need to make this clear, it's it's not really about marriage, what he's talking about here. 
He deals with marriage and divorce, too, in 1 Corinthians 7 and elsewhere. Paul's point here is that, religiously speaking, you can't be married to both the law and Christ. You can't. And if you think you are married to both, you're actually only married to the law. Jesus is a jealous husband. He wants all of your affection, all of your attention. Now, let me, and, and, and we need to be married to Christ. And let, let me just talk about that for a moment. Let me address the men here at Harvest Decatur. Hi, men. How y'all doing? If, can I just give you some pastoral exhortation this morning? If this talk about being married to Christ makes you uncomfortable as a man, let me just say something as your pastor. Get over it. Get over it. This is a common metaphor that's used throughout the scripture. We are the bride of Christ as the church. And if you're uncomfortable about that, that's because you have a false view of masculinity. Get over it. Learn to speak in metaphor, okay? Your wife will love that. By the way, one of the things that we do in premarital counseling is that we coach the men who are about to get married. We tell them, you know, you got to be a bride before you can be a groom. You've got to be a good bride in order to be a good groom. In other words, you, you've got to, you've, as the bride of Christ, you've got to serve Christ and be committed to Christ within the church and Christ's bride to the church before you can be a good husband to your bride. And single ladies, all the single ladies out there, listen up now. You don't want to be married to a man or to seek after a man who is married to the law and hitched to legalism. That is going to make you miserable in marriage. You want a man who is married to Christ, who knows how to love as Christ loves the church. Okay, all that's an aside there, okay? Paul is not really talking about literal marriage here. This is an illustration. And what Paul's saying here is that marriage to the law, a.k.a. legalism, isn't going to save you. It's not going to satisfy you. It's not going to rescue you from your sin. Legalism, by the way, it's legalism, this, this idea that you're saved by the law, you've got to live by the law. Legalism harasses you. Don't you know that? Legalism terrorizes you because you can never do enough to satisfy the demands of the law. You always fall short. But if the law dies, you are free to marry another, namely Christ. And when, by the way, when we do marry Christ, that is, in other words, we embrace Christ by faith, that marriage never dies. Christopher Ashe makes this point. He says, there is no till death do us part in the marriage of the church to Christ. Because that marriage goes right on into eternity. And we celebrate with our bridegroom forever and ever, Jesus Christ. Now, to all this, you might say, okay, Pastor Tony, I'm not married to the law, I'm married to the Christ. That sounds very abstract to me and ethereal. What practical difference does that make in my life? Get straight with me, Pastor Tony. Like, what are we talking about here? How does this impact my life day to day? Well, here's how it should impact you. Your assurance of salvation is not found in your fulfillment of the law. Phew, thank goodness. That assurance you have that I'm saved, 
that I belong to Jesus. That is not found in you obeying the law or keeping the law. So that when you lose the battle for sin, and you will lose the battle sometimes, what do you do? You rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ that paid for your past, present, and future sins. You confess your sin, you rejoice in your Savior, and then you get back to the task of following Jesus. Right? That's how we deal with sin as a growing Christian. By the way, every, every religion of the world basically boils down to do this, don't do this. A list of do's and don'ts. Christianity is not like that. It's different from the other religions of the world. Christianity is based upon grace, not law. Is the law good? Yes. Does the law have a purpose? Yes. Does it save you from your sin? No. No, it can't. But it directs you to the person who can save you. Okay? Everybody with me? Take a deep breath. Here's number two. So a redeemed follower of Jesus Christ is no longer subject or married to the law. That's number one. Secondly, a redeemed follower of Jesus Christ Bears fruit for God, not fruit for death. Redeemed follower of Jesus Christ is a fruit bearer. Bearing fruit for God, not fruit for death. What does that mean, Pastor Tony? Well, let's look at verse 4. Here's what Paul says. Follow along with me in your Bibles. Paul says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. That's interesting. In verses 1 through 3, Paul said that the law died. Now he switches and says that we died to the law, which just lets me know that analogies are never perfect, and this is not a perfect analogy, and Paul, analogies can be used flexibly. <laughs> so, first of all, the law died, and now we die to the law. That's how Paul talks about it now in verse 4. But we also see here that now that the law died, we are free to remarry. You died, and because of that, you are resurrected and free to marry another. That's the, that's the nature of salvation, by the way, right? We've talked about this already in Romans 6, verse 4. You can read this on the screen. We were buried, therefore, by him with baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We are dead to sin. We are dead to law. We are alive in Christ Jesus. Okay, so back to verse 4 here. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, that is Christ, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. If this marriage analogy as a man weirds you out, it's about to get weirder, okay? So just brace yourself. Paul doesn't just use the marriage analogy to de describe our union with Christ in salvation. He also uses here a childbearing analogy. Because what did God command Adam and Eve to do after he created marriage? What did he tell them? Be fruitful and multiply. Make babies, right? Similarly, here in Romans 7, now don't freak out on this, okay? Just follow the metaphor. 
Paul says, what happens to us when we die to the law and we are married now to Christ Jesus? We produce. We bear fruit. We replicate ourselves in the form of making disciples. That's what he's saying in verse 4. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to Christ in order, why, why? In order that we may produce, in order that we may bear fruit for God. I know this, this kind of sounds like Beetlejuice, doesn't it? We die to ourselves and then we're married to Christ, producing fruit. What are we talking about? And, and some of you might even ask, well, all right, well, what is fruit bearing here, Tony? What does that mean? Obviously, we don't have literal offspring with Christ like we do in marriage. So what are we talking about? What is fruit bearing in Christ Jesus? Fruit bearing, we talked about this a little bit last week. Fruit bearing means what? It means sanctification. It means we're being made holy in Christ Jesus. We're being made like Christ. Fruit bearing means the fruit of the Spirit is being produced in our life, not the fruit of the flesh. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Fruit bearing means growing as a disciple and making disciples. We don't make babies when we're married to Christ. We make disciples. We replicate ourselves. Fruit bearing means productivity for Christ Jesus. Jesus said himself. He says, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another sixtyfold and another thirtyfold. That word that Jesus uses for bearing fruit is the same word that Paul uses in Romans 7. It's the Greek word kapophoreo, karpophoreo. Karpos means fruit, pharaoh means to bear or to produce. And so a genuine Christian will, carpal ferreo, a genuine Christian will produce fruit. John the Baptist said, bear fruit, carpos, in keeping with repentance. Christians bear fruit. That's just what they do. Some of you might say, well, you know, Pastor Tony, I'm one of those non-fruit-bearing Christians. Oh, okay. Well, if that's the case, then I've got some oceanfront property in Arizona that I'd like to sell you. There is no oceanfront property in Arizona, Pastor Tony. Yeah, and there's no such thing as a non-fruit-bearing Christian. They don't exist. You are going to bear fruit. Some people might say this, not in this church, I don't think, but maybe the Jewish listeners who were interacting with Paul, they might say, okay, well, I'm saved by faith in Christ, but I'm also saved by obedience to the law. It's both. Paul would say to that, okay, well, so you're married to both Christ and the law? You're at best a polygamist, you're at worst an adulterer. Actually, Paul says if you try to claim both spouses, you're actually married to only the law and not Christ at all. Now, I know what we're talking about here. There's, there's a logic to this and there's some reasoning that's maybe hard to follow. I want you to know this is not theological hair splitting what I'm talking about. I'm not just chopping logic with you. This book that we're reading, the book of Romans, is the most important, important doctrinal book ever written. And Paul is at pains to explain to you right now how your salvation works. Your salvation is not a matter of holding fast to the law. Your salvation is not a matter of bearing fruit either in obedience to the law. 
Your salvation is a matter of turning away from the law and turning to Christ. And the irony of that, as you do that, as you embrace Christ, you produce true and better fruit than you ever could married to the law. You produce fruit for God, not fruit for death. Here's how J.D. Greer says it. I love this phrasing. He says, the irony of the Christian life is that the only ones who get better are those who understand their acceptance by God is not conditioned on their getting better. Do I need to read that again? That is so good. The irony of the Christian life is that the only ones who get better are those who understand their acceptance by God is not conditioned on their getting better. Paul says this in verse 5. Look at this with me. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The law arouses sinful passions. I'll give you an example. The speed limit says 70 miles per hour. How fast do you drive? 75. Or as fast as I can and still get away with it, Pastor Tony. Right? Come on now. A few years ago, we, as elders, we traveled to Davenport to do some training. It was me and George Bennett was driving, and Mike Vernon was driving, and Mike Holder was driving, and we were all trying to get there. I think we were a little bit late. And once we got there, Daria said to all of us, all of the elders were speeding on the way up here, except for her husband, George. George was the good one. And, and why was that the case? Because we're all sinners and we like to break the law if we can get away with it. You know what? Even George is a sinner because he was jealous of the rest of us that we got away with it. Our Ken Hughes tells a story about a trip he took to Boston once. And while he was walking south of the common, he saw a sign everywhere that said, keep off the grass. And as he looked out on the common... There were literally hundreds of people who were lying down on the grass. And they were using the signs, keep off the grass, they were using those signs to hang up their clothes. <laughs> Best story about this is, about, is, is Augustine. Augustine, he talks about this in his confessions. And he, he went into this neighbor's yard and it was forbidden to go into this orchard and take pears. So he went in there with his friends and he got some pears and as he was leaving, he started doing some thinking about this. Like, why am I doing I don't even like pears. I'm not even hungry. Why am I doing this? And he realized inside of him, the reason he's doing this is because he heard, you can't do that. It's forbidden for you to do that. Because why do we do this? Because of Romans 7. Our sinful passions are aroused by the law. In our best moments, we try to obey the law and we fail and it punishes us. In our worst moments, we say, to heck with the law. And we get a twisted satisfaction in defying it. It arouses our passions and we break it. We need a better way, people. We need a better way to obedience than legalism. Legalism doesn't work. We need a better paradigm for righteousness and for virtue than legalism. Have you ever been around somebody who's legalistic just for legalism's sake? That, maybe you've been that person at some point in your life. That is toxic. 
It is. It's, and it's unsatisfying, too, to just be legalistic. Warren Wearsby said this once. I love the way that he pastorally writes in his commentary in Romans. He says this, In my pastoral experience, I have counseled many people who have suffered severe emotional and spiritual damage because they have tried to live holy lives on the basis of a high standard. I have seen the consequences of these attempts. Either the person becomes a pretender or he suffers a complete collapse and abandons his desire for godly living. I have seen, too, that many legalists are extremely hard on other people. Yeah. Critical, unloving, unforgiving. Paul wanted to spare his readers this difficulty. This difficult and dangerous experience. This is the fruit of death statement that Paul makes at the end of verse 5. Paul wants you to bear fruit for God, not fruit for death. Legalism leads to the fruit of death. There's a better way. There's a better way, believers. Here it is. Number three. Here's how you get good fruit, not fruit for death. A redeemed follower of Jesus Christ serves by way of the Spirit. Not by way of legalism. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. That kills. We serve God by way of the Spirit. That's a capital S, Spirit. If you're writing that down, make sure you capitalize that S. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. What does that mean to serve by way of the Spirit? Well, let's look at verse 6. Let's finish this up. Paul writes, But now we are released from the law. We have died, and we've remarried Christ, having died to that which held us captive, so that we can serve in a new way, so that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Can I just give you this morning the worst sermon illustration in the history of mankind would would that be of interest to you how could you say no to that here it is okay it's it's really bad all right let's say that you're you're making a roast in the oven okay everybody with me and when the roast is done how do you get that roast out of the oven you don't take a spit and stick the roast and try to pull it out of the oven. Why not? Well, because the flesh is tender. The flesh is weak, and it'll just split the meat apart and destroy the roast. So what do you do? you got to take a spatula, or, or you take a pan, and you try to undergird that roast, and then you are able to pull it out of the oven. Right? Everybody with me so far? I told you this is bad. It gets worse. Why doesn't the spit work? Why doesn't the spit work? Here's why. The spit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I hope that you on camera watching right now can hear the groaning going on in the congregation right now. I told you it was bad. I warned you. 
Paul says this in verse 6. Let me, let me redeem myself here. He says, but now we are released from the law. We died to the spit, having died to that which held us captive. Now that we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. To use Paul's example elsewhere, we walk by the spirit. We are empowered, we are empowered by the spirit for fruit bearing. We don't try to, to bear fruit by keeping the written code. That doesn't work. That produces bad fruit, and it makes us miserable in the process. We come to Christ. And in the words of the old hymn, we lay our deadly doing down. We stop doing, and we start being. We are saved by our identity in Christ, not by our works. Everybody with me? And as a bonus to that, being saved by faith, by grace, the Holy Spirit inside of us inside of us leads us to a place of fruit-bearing and works-producing that we couldn't get to apart from Him. That's a bonus. That's a bonus. And the only way to get to that place is to lay our deadly doing down. Ira Sankey, the great song leader for D.L. Moody, he said it, said it this way. He sang it this way in a hymn. He said, weary working burdened one wherefore toil you so cease your doing all was done long long ago cast your deadly doing down down at Jesus feet stand in him in him alone gloriously complete amen in Jesus alone. By the way, that, that hymn, it wasn't written by Iris Sankey. It was written by a, a pastor, a lowly pastor named James Proctor. And Proctor says this in the preface of that hymn. He said that many a poor sinner has come to Mount Sinai seeking peace with God. You don't find peace with God at Sinai. You find peace with God at the foot of Calvary. Not, not Sinai, but Calvary. That's where we find peace with God. You find peace by Christ, not by doing any good thing or by doing works. And paradoxically, that's also where you find real fruitfulness and real spiritual work as a believer. It's where you find real fruitfulness, not born out of desperation or obligation, but born out of love and joy and desire to please God, not appease God. Can I give you another illustration? This is a little better than the previous one, all right? When, I hope these are helpful. When I was a kid, I was, can I just say this? Can I confess something? I was a smelly, stinky, dirty little boy. I was. And, you know, my parents were always like, take a bath, wash your hair, comb your hair, brush your teeth, put on clean clothes. I didn't want to. I didn't. It's, you know, I was this smelly, dirty little boy. Ask my mom sometimes. She'll tell you all about it. All of that changed in the seventh grade. Now, instead of my parents saying, go wash yourself, they were saying, get out of the bathroom. You're spending too much time in there. Now, instead of saying, you know, you need to comb your hair, they were telling me, stop combing your hair. And why did that happen? How did that happen? 
I'll tell you how it happened. I haven't even told my wife this, so this is a big reveal right now. <laughs> it happened because of a girl named Melissa. <laughs> and, you know, now I wanted to be presentable in her sight. Now I wanted to be well-groomed and clean, relatively. What happened? My heart changed. All right? My heart changed. Now, just set aside for the moment that Melissa never gave me a second thought, okay? That's beside the point. I'll save that story for some other time. I had a heart change. I had a heart change. What am I getting at here? Here's what I'm getting at. Stuart Briscoe says it this way. Any parent of a teenage boy will remember the days when rules and regulations about scrumming teeth and combing hair and washing necks were in force. No doubt they also recall the remarkable day when instead of dragging their reluctant adolescent to the bathroom, they found that a transformation of attitude had taken place, which required new rules limiting the amount of time he could spend in the bathroom. Where once it was a battle to apply the comb to hair, now it was a battle to be able to afford the exotic shampoos necessary for a young man who was in love for the first time. I don't know anything about exotic shampoos, but I, I know what he's talking about. And then he says this, that is the difference between the oldness of the letter and the newness of the spirit. What changed? What changes in the mind of a young person who now willingly does what his parents tell him to do? What changes with a Christian who has been saved by grace, not by works? The change is a change of the heart. We want to serve Christ. We want to please Christ. We do it not in order to earn God's favor, but because we have God's favor and we want to please him, not appease him. Right? Listen, can I get personal with you for a second? Even more personal. This is me now, 41-year-old Pastor Tony, okay? I agonize about what I'm going to preach on Sunday. My, my worst fear is to get up here before the congregation and just give you a list of do's and don'ts. I don't want to do that. That doesn't work. I'd rather not preach than preach that. Do this, don't do that. Let's go to Culver's, okay. In my heart, every Sunday, the work that God does in me is to lead you on a process through the gospel, to the gospel, and then through the gospel so that the Holy Spirit inside of you will receive what the Holy Spirit wrote down here and will apply it. That's what I'm trying to do. I, I know that seems kind of circuitous doing that, but I, I don't want to go straight to you with behavior modification. I don't want to preach that. And you know what? I know that doesn't work. Not long term. You'll just rebel because that's our heart. You know what? And if I'm preaching Romans right, unless I'm twisting it, you really can't preach legalism in the book of Romans. You've got to preach the heart, heart change, the spirit inside of you. That's what brings the changes. Robert Mounts, he talks about this. He says this. You can read this on the screen. 
He says the shift from law to spirit is a shift from legalism to true spirituality. How unfortunate that so many believers continue to understand the Christian experience within an ethical framework determined by law. God help us. God free us from that. To serve in the spirit is to live the resurrected life to claim a rightful place in Christ dead to sin, and free to live for righteousness, we now live lives that bear fruit for God. So my desire here on Sunday morning is not behavior modification. It's not moralism. It's not that you just live a morally upright life. My desire is to preach to the Holy Spirit inside of you and help you to understand and obey what the Holy Spirit has written here and live that out. It is. I pray for that. Pray for me that pray for for me in that every Sunday to do that. That's what God wants me to preach and that's what God wants you to hear. Okay? So listen, let me let me try to land this plane as best I can and then we'll sing a song of worship together. Here's what you need to hear every week, I think even. As a Christian, every day you need to tell yourself this. I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by grace. You need to hear reminders every week and every day that you and I are sons and daughters of God. We have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We didn't earn our salvation. We received it by faith, by grace. You need to hear encouragement from me, empowered by the Holy Spirit, preaching this Bible that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and directed toward the Holy Spirit inside of you to produce changes in your life in accordance with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Look that up sometime. That is a little s spirit. Y'all get that? The little s spirit of Tony, my will, my persona, my desire, that, that spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. Paul says here in verse 6 is not little s spirit. It's capital S spirit. The Holy Spirit inside of you. So my task is to preach to that spirit and to help you to access that Holy Spirit to obey what God has commanded us in the scriptures. Does that make sense? That's my task. What's, what's your task? You might say, what's my, pass? what's my task, Pastor Tony? What do we do? Here's what you do on Sunday. You listen. You remember that you are a saved follower of Jesus Christ. And then you produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You live a life pleasing to God by the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Why? Because a redeemed follower of Jesus Christ is no longer subject to the law, bears fruit for God, not fruit for death, and serves by way of the Spirit. Let's bow in prayer, can we?
Oh, Jesus, we truly are broken sinners, incapable of saving ourselves. God, we humbly bow before you as our Savior, as our Lord, as our Master, as our husband, Lord. We are the bride of Christ. You are the bridegroom and you died for us to set us free. So God, we're here to worship you. We're here to serve you. We're here to lay down our lives. We're here to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, to be used for your purposes. God, empower us, empower the Holy Spirit inside of us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Make us productive as followers of Christ in the best sense of that word, Lord. Productive fruit bearers. I pray. Do you desire that, church? Do you now? If you do, just say amen with me. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together.